just wanted to take a take a moment to share with you guys um, a passage I was reading this week that just really hit me. Um, it's in Psalm 51, and it's David talking about how how could we possibly bring an offering to Christ that is worthy? And it's a really powerful passage because he's reflecting on how God didn't ask us in the new covenant to burn offerings anymore. Like there was no bull, there was no animal that we could bring that was good enough for Christ. And all he wanted was our hearts. All he wanted was our sacrifice of praise. And so it says here, it says, open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. So let's just reflect on that as we sing this next song, how much God desires a sacrifice of praise from us.
Give a sacrifice of praise, not just on Sunday morning, Lord, but in every aspect of our lives. And I just pray that as Tony preaches this morning, God, that you would speak through him, that we would encounter you, God, and learn something new. And in your name I pray, amen. Please be seated. And how are you this morning? Gabe, could I get that thing right there? A couple quick announcements. First of all, Thank you, Gabe. Yeah. I want to remind you of, of some of our Bible studies that we do. We have a women's Bible study and a men's Bible study every week. This week, the women's Bible study is starting a new... I didn't do that. I don't think. But it freaked you guys out. I could see that. Women's Bible study is starting a new Bible study on gratitude. It's called um, Choosing Gratitude, Your Joy to Journey. And this, so the study that starts this week takes you to the first week of June. And it is um, Wednesday night, 6.30, and Thursday morning, 9.30. Pick one or the other. And it's going to be a great study on gratitude, which, which if we remember from the very first week in Romans, what's at the heart of following God? Being grateful. It should be foundational to everything we do. Also, men's Bible study meets every Monday morning at 7 o'clock. It discusses the sermon. And tomorrow morning, just to let you know, if you guys usually come to Men's Bible Study or don't, you're welcome. But we are going to have a, a, a robust conversation about the sermon from last week on God's foreknowledge and predestination. Evidently, I created some confusion, so I will increase that confusion tomorrow morning. Um, so with that, we have a lot of other things going on. We also have Easter coming up. So with Easter is Good Friday, and we're going to have a Good Friday service, obviously Friday night, April 2nd, 6.30 in this room. It'll be a communion service, and, and the worship team is practice, are, are planning a very um, experiential time for us to worship the Lord that night. So put that on your calendar, Good Friday, April 2nd, 6.30 right here. And then Sunday morning Easter, we have two services, invite your friends. The governor has opened up a larger capacity for us to fill this room up more than we normally do. So we're excited about what God's going to do that day. With that, two weeks ago, we presented Del Elias to you as a deacon candidate. And, and part of the process of that was so that you could go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 to the end, to the end of the paragraph. And you analyze what a qualification of a deacon is. And, and you then confirm to us. Dell's qualifications. And I understand this week many of you um, agreed with our decision of, of Dell's walk with the Lord and her love for people. This is a position she is qualified for. So today we want to pray for Dell and, and install her in this position. So Dell, would you come up? Neil's going to join us. And um, a deacon, at its very core, the word deacon means servant. And a deacon is also part of the church leadership where Paul writes to the Philippians. He says, he says to the Philippians, to all the elders and the deacons of the church who he's addressing. 
And so Dell has agreed to step into this position that she, I don't want to say earned, that's the wrong way to look at it. But she and her faithfulness um, has, you know, like cream rises to the top. And we said, you know what, Dell is already doing the work. Let's call her what she is. So, so we want to appoint her today to that. And... Um, and pray for her. We're going to respect this COVID distance. So if you can just put your hands out and point to Dell. So, Father, first of all, Neil, would you open us? Yeah. Today, Lord, uh, we installed Dell Elias uh, as a deacon uh, at Cornerstone here. Lord, we thank you uh, that you delivered Dell here. Uh, her love for this church, her love for people, and her love for you. And this mm -hmm. is all about uh, glorifying you, Lord. That's what this is all about. Thank you, Lord. Father, your kindness towards us is, is overwhelming. That is, we're going to talk today that you have a love for us that is incomprehensible. And we thank you for each one of us that you love us. I thank you for your love for Dell and how that love has changed her life and, and pushed her to love others. So continue to fill her with your spirit to that end and serve the people of this church. And um, again, we thank you for your calling on our lives and thank you for Dell's stepping into that calling. So we love you, Father, and just ask that you protect her from the evil one as he tries to thwart her, to tell lies to her about who she is and the ministry she has here and, and fill her with the purpose she already has. We love you and thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So thank you, Del, very much. Yes, okay. Mm -hmm. so. Also, I forgot to mention, Dell's the leader of the Women's Bible Study, as you all know. But she has some books left for the study that starts this Wednesday and Thursday. So talk to her after service. With that, let's open to the book of Romans. And let's just ask God. God, please guide us in your word this morning. And teach us about your amazing love for us. Just overwhelm us with this truth, Father. We thank you in Christ's name. We're in the last paragraph of Romans 8, and we've been building up to this. The whole idea about the love of God. And, and I want us to put some thought into what love is right now. That There's a very um, popular song came out, I don't know, 15 years ago. Tina Turner sang it. Remember what it is? What's love got to do with it? Let's listen to the first few lines of that. What's love got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? That's how she defines it. What's love got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? And so, you know, the, obviously the song is about relationship between a man and a woman and the frustration and all that. I, I, I don't know all the depths of the song. But she defines it as an emotion. Is that what love is? An emotion, because if love is an emotion, well, first of all, can the word love be used to refer to an emotion? It, does, it is. The word has a huge range of meaning. Has a huge range of meaning and nuances. I put this little, little thing together. This, so I'm going to give you a little narrative of two people um, who are in love. So, so this is fictional, but it, it describes many of you in this room who have been in love. So this couple meets, and they fall in love. And it's love at first sight. And because of their love for the mountains, they moved to Lake Tahoe because Lake Tahoe is their first love. They get married. 
And they make love passionately to each other out of an undying love for one another. But over time, they grow to love themselves more than each other. And eventually, they fall out of love and end up divorced. How, how encouraging, isn't it? Seven times I used the word love there. And each of those times has a different nuance of what it means. I didn't mention the fact that they love tennis. And when you score zero in tennis, what is your score? Love. That makes no sense to me. So the use of the word, maybe the overuse of the word, my daughter, when she was a teenager, I'd listen to her on the phone talking to her friends. Oh, I love you, I love you, talking to her girlfriends, you know, just the, the way young teenage girls talk to each other. And then two weeks later, she couldn't stand the girl. I said, how do you say you love her one week and the next week you can't stand her? Of course, I got no answer. We use the word pretty easily. But our overuse of the word and maybe all the nuances of the word, how does it influence our belief when we say God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We've heard that so many times and it's supposed to be a verse that should shake you. It should rock your world that God loves you. But it's almost like, yeah, I know that. So what is the definition of love? Some would say 1 Corinthians 13. I suggest to you that 1 Corinthians 13 is not a definition of love. I'd say, I'd say it's hard to define love. But 1 Corinthians 13 is a, gives examples of what love does. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not gossip. That's what love does. So for today, as we talk about the love of God, I want us to keep a thought in mind. This is not comprehensive definition. This is, a, this is a beginning idea. But the love of God clearly involves emotion. But I would suggest that the foundation of love is the idea that God is deeply devoted to you. He is devoted to you. And I've asked you several times in this Roman series, do you believe God is for you? Paul's going to ask that question today. Do you believe God is for you? I hope by now, by the time we're done today, you'll understand he is 100% for you. In all of your flaws and failures, and you know deep inside some of the issues you have, and you're not alone in that, we all have them. And in spite of that, God is deeply devoted to you. He loves you. So we're going to talk today about the love of God as it relates to the completion of our salvation and that our salvation is certain. We've talked about the fact that we, we learned in Romans 8, 15 that we were adopted as God's children. The Spirit of God cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father, we're adopted. But then we learn later in verse 23 that we're not fully adopted yet. We only have the first fruits of the Spirit. And our full adoption happens when the resurrection takes place and I receive my glorified body. So I'm adopted in the family of God, but it's not complete yet. I'm waiting for the day my salvation is complete. I have been raised from the dead, and I have my new glorified body. Now I am fully adopted with the fullness of the Spirit. So the completion of our salvation is certain. And this theme goes back to the beginning of chapter 5. We looked at that last week. But listen to 5.8 as he talks about three things we're going to talk about today. In 
he introduces subjects we're going to complete today in chapter 8. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So who are you according to this passage? Sinners. In fact, two verses later, it calls you an enemy. But in spite of that, God loves you. He loves you, and out of his love, he sent his son to redeem you and to make you his own. That theme, he starts there in 5.8. He completes at the end of this chapter. So let's look at that. The completion of our salvation is certain because of two things. The first one, the completion of our salvation is certain because of the work of God for us in Christ. Let's look at 8.31 through 34. I'm just going to walk one verse at a time and give some thoughts here. We could spend weeks on this passage. What shall we say to these things? And what are these things? The things he just mentioned from last week's message. That whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. I.e., from God's perspective, your entire salvation is accomplished. It's past tense to God, even though we're not glorified yet. And what shall we say to these things then? If God is for us, and is he? Who can be against us? And I used to answer that question, who can be against us, as nobody. That's not, that's not Paul's point. Actually, the whole world could be against you. And sometimes it is. Many things are against you. We're going to learn in this passage. Paul's point is not nothing can be against you. Paul's point is it doesn't matter what is against you. Because God is for you. So let that sink deep in your mind. God is for you. And I don't want to bring up the bad news of your choices in life. But think through some of the things you've done that are very contrary to the nature of God. Contrary to who God has called you to be. And to where maybe if the other human being in your life did those, you would wonder, am I for that person anymore because of how offensive they are? But according to the gospel in the book of Romans, that's why Christ came, is to redeem you from those things. Because even when you were living in the midst of those sins and rebellion, God was for you. It's an amazing truth. It's got to sink in deep. And if I, if I can't bring the emotion to it, I'm sorry for that. But I hope you can, through the passage and talking to God, understand the depth of this incredible truth that God is for you. And if he is for you, nothing can come against you and change that. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So again, he did not spare his own son. And you've heard this before, and I've, I've even mentioned it before. I have three sons, and, and I love them deeply. And, and, and this is no insult to you, but I'm not sacrificing them for you. It's, it's I, I love you, but not that much. And I don't mean anything. You're, you're the same way towards me. So the depths of God's love for you, the depths of God is for you. What's the proof of that? Prove it, God. I gave my own son for you. I gave my own son to redeem you from your sin. I gave my own son to turn you from a sinner to a saint. I gave you my own son to go from an enemy to my adopted child, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. 
I want to read to you Isaiah 53, verse 10. This verse still disturbs me. And I'm reading the New American Standard. Different translations do it differently. This is the New American Standard. Isaiah 53 is the passage on the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah. I'm just dropping into a context here. But the Lord was pleased. The Lord is Yahweh. Yahweh was pleased to crush him. The word um, him there, this referring to the Messiah, Jesus. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Now, the, the reason this verse disturbs me, in fact, several translations say it was the Lord's will to crush him. But the New American Standard translates it as the Lord was pleased. Almost every time the word occurs in the Hebrew Bible, it's translated as pleased. And, and certainly it's attached to the will of God. God is pleased to carry out his will. But why would God be pleased to crush his own son? It sounds sadistic, doesn't it? But that next word, if. See, it wasn't a pleasure to see his son suffer. It was a pleasure to have the consequence from that suffering result in your salvation. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his days, he will see his offspring, and will, wait, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The Lord turned over his own son to the cross, and according to Isaiah, in some way was pleased to do so if the end result was your redemption. This is the truth that should um, create great humility in us. Not an arrogance of, oh, look what I'm worth. But more, I deserve nothing. And if God is for me, what's the proof? He gave me his most precious possession. That's how important you are to God. Let's keep reading. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so this can be taken a couple different ways. When it says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Again, the answer is anyone who wants to, but that's meaningless. The scripture tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That he says, hey, God, did you see what your servant did? So, so Satan wants to derail you and even accuses you before God. But what's the effect of that on God? In the end, the implication here is there is no effect on God. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Again, doesn't matter. Who is to condemn? Oh, it's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised. So one thought here is, who is the final one you stand before in judgment? You know, got, obviously God, but we're going to learn in, in, in months ahead as I'm thinking about the next series that all judgment's been given to the Son. Jesus Christ is the one that will judge the world, the living and the dead, the believer, the unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says all Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and will give an account for everything we've done in this body. All the things God has called us to do will give an account to Jesus for that. Jesus is the judge. 
So who's going to condemn people in the end? Jesus is. What's Jesus' role in your life? He actually died to save you. You put your faith in him, and he's interceding for you. So if all judgment is given to the Son, but in fact Christ died for you and now intercedes for you, then there is no condemnation coming to you. It cannot happen, because the one who will condemn is actually the one who is at the right hand of God interceding for you. You are 100% assured that he is for you, and your salvation will be complete. Now, as we get to chapter 12, we're going to learn. We don't get to say, oh, then it doesn't matter how I live. I can do whatever I want. That's not the response. The response of learning the love of God for me is to turn around and devote my life to him. Not out of legalism, not out of of some sense of I'm earning something, but just pure response. The depth of the love of God for me, what he's done for me, I bow down and I serve him with every ounce of my being now. So, I'll ask you the two questions Paul just asked. If God is for us, who is against us? Doesn't matter, because God is for us. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Doesn't matter, because the judge is your Savior who's interceding for you. Now let's go to the next section. The completion of our salvation is certain because of the love of God for us in Christ. First, our salvation is certain because of what God has done in Christ through the cross. Second, our salvation is certain because of the love of God for us in Christ. Let's look at Romans 5.35. And and this kind of is building to a crescendo now. You can just see the emotion in Paul. In fact, the commentators I was reading was talking about Paul is using rhetorical devices here with these questions. He could have just flat out said, no one is against you and no one can condemn you. But instead, he asks questions to get you involved in the conversation, questions that he doesn't answer, but the answers are obvious from the context of Romans. So he continues in that vein. In verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This one one has a definite answer. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Absolutely no one or no thing. It's not possible. But he gives a list of things that he personally, if you went to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you'd see Paul suffered some of these things. And as human beings and followers of Jesus Christ, we may suffer terrible things at the hands of this world. And it might be evidence, we might say, you know what? Is God really for me? Because my life is hard right now. Does God really love me? Has he left me? Because it's painful right now. This, my, who my, those people I love have betrayed me. Look what he says here when he asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation. Any of you have tribulation this year? Yeah. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness or danger or sword. And then it's interesting here. He reads in verse 36 a verse from Psalm 44, I believe it is. And Psalm 44 is a Let me read it to you. It says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It seems like a strange verse to put in the middle of this context. But if you go to Psalm 44, what you're going to learn is this is written by the sons of Asaph. Excuse me, the sons of Korah, who are worship leaders in Israel. And, And the song is about their experiences 
They, they believe they're living a life to please and honor God, but their experiences are hardships. And they're interpreting these experiences as God is not for us anymore. So when they say, for your sake, we are being killed all day long, this is, for your sake, God, we, we do all these wonderful things for you, but yet we're being persecuted. We, 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 we're full, full of distress and tribulation. It's all for you we're doing this. We regard this sheep to be slaughtered. Where are you? In fact, in that song, the, the sons of Korah say, are you sleeping, God? Have you fallen asleep on us? So in the midst of this question, what can separate us from the love of Christ? We could look at our circumstances and say, if God really loved me, this wouldn't be happening. Because Israel came to that conclusion. At least the sons of Korah did in their circumstances and wrote the psalm about it as they cried out to God. It's a psalm of lament. But Paul's response, when he brings up this context of Israel, his response is, no, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. These things aren't proving God doesn't love you. Actually, in these things you're going to conquer, which proves God loves you. So distress, persecution, perils, nakedness, hunger, famine, all that is not evidence of God's lack of love. The endurance through it, becoming conquerors through it, proves God is on your side. And here's the point, folks. We know that life's not easy. And too often we turn Christianity into this thing where if I follow Jesus, you'll have a wonderful, blessed, easy life, which is an absolute lie. If you follow Jesus, all the troubles in your life have great purpose, where God will use those troubles to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. We talked about that two or three weeks ago, that all things work together for good. Persecutions, peril, tribulations, famine, hunger, all those things work together for good. And if you don't fully understand why, what does it say about the Holy Spirit in 826? That he intercedes for you in prayer. So this is the flow of this whole context, you guys. The life is difficult, and here's the beauty of it. And I know, I know this year many of you have concluded this. Because a lot of people have lost hope this year. Whether it's COVID issues, whether it's job-related issues, whether it's political stuff, they've lost hope. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there's absolutely no reason to lose hope in the midst of any of it. We can be discouraged and say, I don't like what's going on. I wish it were different. But we never lose hope because we have a God who in all the things and all the garbage in our world is working his plan. That in the end, you will stand before him fully conformed to the image of his son. And the proof of that is he gave his own son for you and he loves you with an undying love. Or I like to change that. He loves you with a dying love. His son died for you. I'm going to my conclusion now before I finish my sermon. So let me get back to it. So verse 30 said, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. So look at these comparisons. Because he goes back and forth. Death nor life, one or the other. In, in, the, in, the end spectrum of the, the, the ends of a spectrum. Death or life. Angels nor rulers. This is, this is Paul's words for angels are the, the good angels. The rulers are Paul's word for the demonic realm. Neither one of these can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ. Nor things present, whatever's happened in your life today, nor things to come. The uncertainty of the future can't separate you. Then he just has nor powers, another word for demonic realm. There's no comparison here. Then he goes back to comparisons. Nor height, 
height nor depth, which is probably can be interpreted everything in creation. Now we're getting comprehensive. Doesn't matter what's out there, can't separate you, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, what's love got to do with it? Love is a game changer. It's a game changer. And so next time you hear the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, don't just go, oh, yeah, I know that verse. That's that football game where the guy paints it on his chest, you know. Um, This is the heart of the gospel. By the way, in the gospel of John, the world, God so loved the world, the cosmos. In John, the cosmos is that system that is against God. But God loves the world. I want to read to you from Romans three verses on the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, how they all love you. And so we already read here in Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is nobody can separate us. Jesus loves you. 8.39, neither depth nor, nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So this, this is the love of the Father for you. And, and let me stop there before I talk about the Spirit. How much does God love you? If we, if we put... Let's not be idolaters. We can't see God. We don't make any statue of God. But if God is in this room and, and it's unmistakable, and his son Jesus Christ who became human was standing right here, and then God put all of you over here, and I ask the question, which one, who does God love more, Jesus or you? Your answer? You know I'm setting you up, huh? Listen to John 17, Jesus' prayer. He's praying to his father about this is the night before he died. And I'm dropping in verse 23. He says, you know, I, I, I am in them and you are in me. Them is his disciples, us. That they may be, be perfectly one. So the unity of God here, the unity of the body of Christ. They may be one so that the world may know that you sent me. So our unity tells the world Jesus came from the Father. The world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So the way we live our lives in unity tells the world Jesus really did come from the Father and the Father loves us as much as he loves his Son. Look, is that, is that verse up there, did we have that verse or did I not give that to you? I didn't give it to you. Listen to it again. The way we live in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and you loved them even as you have loved me. God loves you just as he loves his son. This um, is unbelievable. If you've adopted a child, you could relate to some of this probably. I actually have three sons. Two are birth sons, one is adopted. And he came into my home when he was 16, or excuse me, 14, and as a foster um, child, and, and we adopted him. But I remember talking, to, they required us to go to adoption counselors. And I remember talking to them and I asked the question, 
will I be able to love this boy as much as I love my two birth sons? And the counselor said, all men ask that question. Usually ladies don't have that trouble when they choose to adopt, but men do. And, and he said, don't worry, it, it, it will happen. Don't stress, don't let this stop you. That son is now 33 years old. And I tell you, in my mind, there is no difference between my three sons, none whatsoever. That I deeply love all three of my boys equally. And in my mind, I only explain that he's adopted because his heritage is from Mexico and you know he's not my birth son. Otherwise, you would never know he's adopted because he is my son. God loves you as much as he loves his own son. The father loves you. The son loves you. Romans 15, 30. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. This is the only time I could find where it says the spirit loves you. And it's not, not because he loves you less. It's just not an emphasis of scripture. But in the book of Romans, who loves you? The father loves you. Proven by what? He sent his son. The son loves you. Proven by what? He willingly went to the cross to die for you. The spirit loves you. Proven by what? That's not so explicit in Romans. But the fact that the spirit enters you and makes you a child of God. You are deeply loved by the triune God. And this is life changing. So as we end this, I want you to think about the love of God. John, in 1 John, two times says God is love. So often what we do is we make the love of God the most important attribute of God. And I want to caution you on that. Don't say, well, love is more important than everything else. I want you to think about that because God also says, I am holy. He says it in Leviticus and Peter repeats it in 1 Peter. Be holy because I am holy, God says. So God is love. God is holy. David refers to God as Yahweh, you are righteous. You are just. So we can find different attributes that have the you are or he is to it. Which one's most important? Be careful we don't choose one and make it elevated. But there's an emphasis on the love of God that is developed more than the other ones. So it's, it's right for us to emphasize what scripture emphasizes. Let me suggest this to you. If, if God was not love, but he was holy, righteous, and just, what would be your response? He doesn't love you, but he's holy, righteous, and just. Where do you stand now? You're in trouble. If God is just holy, righteous, and just, but doesn't deeply, isn't deeply committed to you, you're in trouble. I'm in trouble. Let's reverse it. What if God is, is love, but he's not holy and righteous? That's nice. I'm not sure what it does for me. But if we have this holy, righteous, loving God that is for me, then in his holiness, he now gives, let me go back to justice. The word justice comes from the word justified. He has given you the righteousness of Christ. He has brought you before him and said, you now stand righteous before me. That's the whole theme of the book of Romans. He has given you the power to live holy. Romans 6, because now you have the power to defeat sin. It's not your master anymore. And all of this then can become enveloped. Why did he do those things? Because he loves you. 
Because he loves you, he gave you his righteousness. Because he loves you, he's given you the power to live holy. All the characteristics of God that are in Christ Jesus are now ours. Now, we don't become God. But becoming like Christ is to have some of these attributes of God developed in each of us. And love seems to be the one that is highly developed in Scripture. And it should be one of those things that overwhelms us. You know, when you think about doing a sermon like this, you want to leave an impression of the wonder of this truth. And so today I ask you, if you're still kind of going, oh, old news, then either I didn't do a very good job presenting it to you or you're not listening. Either one could be true. But today as you leave, as we sing the last song, we're going to sing a song, take communion and sing another song. I want you to grasp the depths of God's love. From Romans 5, we were sinners and enemies. To Romans 8, but he sent his son to change your entire identity. To cleanse you from your sin, to change your identity from an enemy to a child of God. To empower you with his spirit to live a life that brings glory to him. All that is enveloped in his love. Let's thank him for it. Father, we thank you. We deeply thank you, Lord. As, as the whole book of Romans opens up with this idea of gratitude should flow from us. We thank you for what you have done. Give us eyes to see the depths of it, the height of it, the breadth of it. Give us eyes to see what we were without you and where we'd be today without you. Give us eyes to see who you've called us to be in the life you want us to live that flows from your love and doesn't flow from a, a guilty conscience or simply pure duty or legalism. It's a direct response, Lord. Our lives are a direct response that the living God, the creator of the universe, the judge of all, says, I love you and I am for you. Thank you, Father, for that amazing truth. Because of Jesus, we can pray to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Why don't we stand and sing this song?
Of mercy. 
Thank you, Taryn. You know, when we do communion so regularly, please be seated. The ushers can please hand out the elements. We do communion regularly. Sometimes you, you say, what verse do I want to read? What section of scripture to, to, to introduce us to us? Thank you, sir. John 3.16 works great today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. When Christ came into the world, he had a goal in mind to redeem the world which is made up of individuals. I have one, thank you. But I want to go to the end of the passage. This, that's, that introduces a section that ends this way. The last two verses of John chapter 3. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. But it says, if you don't obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on you. What does that mean, obey? I think at the core, what it means is not, have you kept all the rules? The core, what it means is, there's the call. Jesus says, repent and believe in me. Have you done that? That is to obey Christ. And that is what we call putting your faith in Jesus. If you've done that, if you've come to the place where you realize your sin and that the price of your sin is death, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, I've trusted in Jesus. And, and in light of that, because of his death, his righteousness is given to me. All my sin went to him and he's paid for it. It's not that God simply said, okay, I'll, I'll push your sin aside. No, he put it on his son. So today in this room, I look around, I know most of you. I presume you've trusted in Jesus. Some of you I don't know, a few of you. But I ask you today, all of you, have you trusted in Christ? When you stand before the Lord that day, and if he hypothetically says, why should I let you in to my kingdom? The only answer is, God, I'm trusting in Jesus to get me in. What he did on the cross is my only hope. That is what it means to trust in Christ. So if you've been doing this for years and have missed that, then today's the day to do that, to trust in Christ. If it's new to you, the whole idea of this, the simplicity of the gospel, trusting in Jesus, then I beg you today is the day of salvation and trust in him. Be the first day you actually take this and it's meaningful to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Go ahead and peel off and take the bread out. The body of Christ. Jesus took bread on the night which he was betrayed and said, this is my body given for you. And every time you take it, you do this in remembrance of me. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this symbol. This little symbol, Lord, that represents the whole, your whole life, 
a life lived in a human body just like ours, a life lived in obedience, a life lived in all the struggles and pains of life, all in faithfulness to your Father, and then given up for us. Thank you, Lord, for what this represents. We remember you, Jesus. Let's partake together. The cup, likewise, Luke tells us he took the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant given for you. And we've talked about this endless times, but that new covenant brought you forgiveness. It brought you a new heart, regeneration. It brought you the indwelling spirit who will never leave you because of what Christ has done for you. Again, Father, we thank you for this amazing plan. And we participate in this to remember what you have done. Remind us who we used to be but are no longer and empowered us for whom we are to be every day. And that is a person being conformed to your image who lives a life of love in this world. Thank you. Let's partake together. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, when we participate in this, we remember and we proclaim. We remember what's been done for us and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the last prayer of the Bible, come Lord Jesus. Let's sing one more song. Stand up with me. Let's sing one more song to remember what God has done for us.
Sunday.